before we hear from God's word from Numbers 11, uh, how does Christ tell us we should listen to his word together? If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And this is God's word from Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat! We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell among the, upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Verse 18. And say to the people, and this is God speaking, Consecrate yourselves tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because... You have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? This is God's word. Amen. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask that this morning as we draw near to you, that, Father, you would keep your promise and draw near to us. And we ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to perceive and to be sensitive to your leading, to your challenges, and to your prodding so that our hearts would be healed, so we can serve you, and others would see the beauty of who you are in us and in our community. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we, my family just recently returned from a short trip uh, to Europe for summer vacation. We hadn't done any big trip like this, and one of the places we got to go was Paris. And for all of you who've been, and I'm sure many of you have, one of the best things about going to Paris is you get to go to all these sites, right? You go to museums and everything else. And I had this all planned out. We decided first day we're going to go out and we're going to go to the Louvre. And as soon as we get there, I saw the massive lines. And given everything that's happening right now, right, every checkpoint, it wasn't a line to buy just a ticket, but they checked every handbag and backpack, like literally, like made you open it. So it was... So I was like, oh boy, okay, so we're gonna, let me go and find out where to go, which line to go, because there seems to be multiple lines. So we go up to the front, and I'm asking a guy, all right, a docent at the museum, where do I go to buy tickets and what line do I go in? And he looks at me. And uh, by the way, if you haven't noticed, I have a prosthetic arm here, so I wasn't wearing my prosthetic. And the guy looks at me and he goes, for you, no line, and you don't have to pay. And I was like, what? 
What do you, what, I've never heard of such a thing, okay? So I said, wait a second, what do you mean? And, and you're, you're together, you're, your wife, your daughter, all free. You come this way. And I was like, what? And I asked him again, so why, why is this? And he said, it's because you are disabled. And my first instinct was, I love Paris. France, <laughs> France, I turned into a Francophile right there. I said, this is amazing. Like, you guys have a program for, for people who are disabled, not just in people in wheelchairs? This is amazing. I've never seen this. So we go, and he said, oh, yeah, I think it works at every museum. So I'm, like, on it. You know, we go. Every museum we go, I go up to the front line. We get in for free. And they're like, of course, of course, this way. So we go to Versailles. We go to Versailles. We go back and forth to all these places. We end up at uh, Saint-Chapelle. And I go up to the front, and the person says, the line is over there. And I'm like, what? How is this? Do you see me? <laughs> you know? I am disabled. Does this not work here? He said, no, no, no. You wait in this line. And you know what that moment, it felt like I went from always getting upgraded to first class and being sent back to coach. And I waited in line. And not only that, it got worse. I had to pay. The first union fee, we had to pay in Paris. Amazing. And I'm standing there, and I am complaining. You know, complaining about one museum when I've been treated so well uh, in all of Paris and by the Parisian government and at every museum. And I had to ask myself, what is wrong with me? You know, what is wrong with me that the moment I didn't get the special treatment that I felt like I deserved or was getting, I just, you know, rolled into this complaining and grumbling, grumbling. It, grumbling tells us a whole lot about myself, about you, about me, about our hearts. Because the problem when you dig down deep, it's a problem of sin. Dorothy Sayers, a great British writer, she describes sin as this deep interior dislocation of the soul. There's something deeply wrong with us. You know, and at times I think in our lives, grumbling doesn't seem like it's all that destructive. But I want to show you that, you know, in many ways, it's far more... Uh, insidious than we want to believe. It's a symptom of something that's much deeper, and I think we see it here in this chapter. Because look at what's going on in Numbers chapter 11, because when you read what's happened until now, you're all led to believe, because up till Numbers chapter 10, there's like this incredible hopefulness in this book, because God is leading his people to the promised land. He said, hey, at Mount Sinai, they entered into this covenant relationship. I know Chris was doing the Ten Commandments. You know, you guys were studying all this earlier in the year. And he told them, you are my treasured possession, a priestly kingdom. And they are on their way to the promised land. And they, at the end of chapter 10, God finally leads them in a cloud to say, we are going. And chapter 11 begins just three days into this journey. And what did we re just read? Verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And literally in the Hebrew, Hebrew it says, people became complainers of evil in the years of the Lord. It was, it's, a, it's not specific, but they're complaining and they're saying something evil. And it angers God so much, there's fire at the edge of the camps. Moses has to intervene on behalf of the people. And this is the first of seven major incidents of grumbling, complaining that leads to final apostasy from Numbers 11 to Numbers 36 that keeps them out of the promised land for 40 years. 
And what you begin to realize very quickly is, as they are on this journey, the problem of getting to the promised land is not going to be just about, it's not about the environment, the harshness of the desert. It's not about the strength of all these other kingdoms that are around them. The problem is going to be them. The problem is going to be their hearts. And in Numbers 11, we have a second incident of grumbling I want us to think about a little bit this morning. And what is it? We see it from verse 4 to 6 and on. And what are the people beginning to complain about? About their food. Now, I don't know if you've ever prepared a meal for someone and they start eating it and you have this feeling that they don't like it or they're complaining about it. It hurts your feeling, okay? <laughs> And here, listen to what it says. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. And verse 6, But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Really, your strength was dried up? Literally, again, it's our souls are dried up. Our life force is gone from us. Well, they seem to have enough strength to complain. You know, um, they're saying what God is providing, and we know manna is this miraculous gift from God for them. They're grumbling at it because they're saying what God has provided is not enough. It's insufficient. And here's the problem with all this complaining and grumbling. It keeps us from sitting down and rejoicing and enjoying what is right in front of us. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when you begin to complain, whether it's about work, about, about other, lots of other things, it starts to sap this joy in us because all you can focus on is, is what's wrong, what's missing, what we don't have, instead of being able to rejoice in and be excited about what God is doing. You know, the, the passage we looked at earlier in our confession, I think it points to that. You know, uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. You guys know that line, comparison is the thief of joy? Why is that? Because in our minds, the way grumbling often shows up is we look at someone's Instagram feed and we get this envy and it's like, oh, if I only had that. Oh, look at their house. I wish I had a house, especially in San Francisco. You start thinking, we'll never have that. You know, why do they get to live over there and I have to live over here? Like, you know, your mind goes through crazy stuff. How come they're so gifted? It's always this, like, over there comparison, grass is greener over there. It starts to suck the joy out of us. Perhaps, oftentimes, our grumbling is rooted in something else. It's like we have plans for our lives. And if only it goes the way I want it, only then will I be satisfied. And I am complaining because it is not going according to plan. I am 28. I should have achieved these markers by now whether it's marriage, some sort of job here, some sort of life, we can go down that list and utterly just complain and complain and complain. Or like the Israelites, we can get sucked into nostalgia, right? Only if it was like it used to be. Have you ever done that? You pine for that golden age. Maybe for you, it was that time in college or grad school. It was fantastic, you know? Like you had all close friends. If you were part of a church, you were excited about that. But the Israelites are looking back to Egypt with great nostalgia, and what are they saying? Oh, the food was so good. Such variety. We had fish. And what are they leaving out? They're saying it was all free. People, you were slaves. 
You know, you, you're leaving out the fact that you were miserable, that you were treated harshly. Remember bricks without straw? What did they do when you got too numerous? They slaughtered your children. And now you have freedom. God is leading you. And instead of being excited about where God is taking them, they're saying, we're going to starve. And they just grumble, grumble, grumble. I am a self-confessed grumbler. I grew up in New York. We grumble. New Yorkers grumble. <laughs> and it was very hard when we first moved to San Francisco because I, I started grumbling because I couldn't deal with the pace of walking here because I was very used to a New York walking pace. <laughs> and I was starting to pass everyone, like walk around them. And I, I'd always get frustrated walking in San Francisco because people walk too slow. And, uh, or I get in line and I'm like, why is there so much space in between me and the next person in line? Like, you, you're not supposed to have personal space, you're in a city, you know? And uh, recently I had this experience, I was at Trader Joe's, and you know what happened? I got on the wrong line. You know what I'm talking about? There was like three persons ahead of me, and they took out a checkbook. <coughs> I'm like, in this day and age of Apple Pay and Android Pay and credit cards, you're going to take out a checkbook? And I'm just like grumbling, literally sighing, rolling my eyes, tapping my foot. Because where I grew up, you better have your wallet out before the person is done ringing up the last item because people behind you are going to say something. But that's me. I complain. When I walk, even in Palo Alto, I rage against all bicyclists because I'm a pedestrian and I feel like I own the road. You know, they have to stop for me. I rage at the cars, I get pedestrian rage. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, that's me. I, get, I crumble. You know, and maybe, maybe you guys do it too. And I'm going to guess you probably do. You know, I'm a grumbler, but I figure you guys are all grumbling about something. Let me ask you this morning, what are you grumbling about? You know, what are you grumbling about? Colleagues at work? Maybe you're grumbling about your work. Maybe you're grumbling about not having enough money. Maybe you're like me and as a pedestrian or a bicyclist or whatever, you're, you're upset at Muni, you're always grumbling about something. Sometimes we grumble about our relationships or lack thereof or where it's going, right? I think we often look at ourselves in the mirror and we grumble at ourselves. We don't like what we see. Maybe this is why we're so critical of others. We're hard on our children. We're hard on our spouses. You know, sometimes we're hard on the church. We're hard on the city. We har we're hard on our neighbors. And our grumbling often destroys us. And why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we do this to others? And the scripture says the answer is it's sin. It twists our hearts in such a way it keeps us from enjoying and rejoicing in what we have right in front of us. Because sin keeps telling us what you have is not enough. It's not good enough. You're not good enough. Your spouse is not good enough. Your, your life is not good enough. And that is what is whispered in our ears. And like grumbling, it starts to reveal certain things about us, and I'm already alluding to it, but the first thing is this. At the root of why our hearts are so restless and grumbling is, for Christians, I would say, it's because we don't trust God. 
And maybe it's the case also for those who are struggling to believe. That you don't see God for who he is, and he is worthy of your trust. And I know that, you know, if there are non-Christians here, some of you may be saying, well, that's not true of me because I don't even believe in God. Because you, you're saying, I don't even know God, I don't trust him, but I'm going to make the case that if you dig down deep, it has something to do with who you worship and what you worship because, as McLaren alluded to earlier in one sense, we all do worship something, and we can talk more about that another time. But I want you to see how God sees this situation in Numbers chapter 11. Because you get down to verse 20, and listen to what God says. He's saying, I'm going to give you all this meat for a month. You know, like you're going to get it for a long time. It's going to come out of your noses. You're going to get so sick and tired of this. And listen to what it says in the second half of verse 20. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? He's saying, you know what you're doing? You're rejecting me by complaining. You're actually complaining that I saved you. After you cried out for 400 years to be saved, God saved you and now you don't like how he's doing it. In Psalm 78, uh, it's a long psalm talking to the Israelites about what it is that you should be passing on to others about the faith. And it gets to the middle of the psalm in verses 21, 22, and it has a take on what actually happened in Numbers 11. And it says this, the Israelites did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. They still sinned. And despite his wonders, they did not believe. Hear, hear that again. About this incident, it says, the Israelites did not believe in God, did not trust in his saving power. They sinned. Despite all the wonders God had done, they did not believe. Because at the end of the day, the way the scripture sees it is, the reason you're grumbling is because you didn't believe in God. You didn't trust in God. You didn't trust that he was going to take care of you and provide for you and care for you. And grumbling is the outward expression of this condition of our hearts. And the question it keeps asking us is, do you believe God is for you? The sad thing about this story, because it's not a happy story, it doesn't end well. The Israelites here are willing to settle for less than God has in mind for them. Have you, do you realize this? Like They're saying, let's go back to Egypt. God's saying, I'm taking you to the promised land. I'm taking you to a place where you're going to have such abundance and joy and hope, you're going to forget about all this. And instead, they're saying, because I don't trust you, we want to go back. And God is saying, I have so much for you. <laughs> but they are afraid, they have fear. And they're saying, if we follow you, we don't know if we're going to have life. And this is very different. You know, complaining is very different than lamenting. You guys know what I'm talking about? Because I don't want you to get the idea that you can't bring your, your uh, burdens and your fears and your anxieties to God. Because there's a lot of places in the scriptures that would say, come bring your fears, bring your disappointments, bring your anger to God. But lamenting is very dis different than this. Lamenting is, God, I am suffering. I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm going to be done, but I need you. Would you meet me in my journey? Would you meet me in my sorrows? Would you meet me in my fears? 
and you're saying waiting is hard, it's painful, I'm praying and I'm praying and I don't know how long I can do this, that's lamenting. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's all about lamenting. There's room for that in the Christian life. We're supposed to do that. But the person who's complaining, like the Israelites, they're saying, I'm done. I, I have nothing left here. I have no trust. Rather than trust you, God, I'm going to go back to that which is familiar and comforting, which is Egypt. That's a place of death, you know? And that's what's going on here. Grumbling shows us where we're weak in being able to trust God. The second thing grumbling reveals about us is that it shows us that we don't really understand grace. We don't understand grace. You know, there's this passage in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus is beginning his ministry and he calls Levi, who's a tax collector, and he says, come follow me. And Levi begins to follow him. He has new life. He's found Jesus or Jesus has found him. He's so excited about what's going on, he decides to throw a party at his house for all his friends. And who are the ones that show up at that party? Other tax collectors and sinners. They welcome Jesus' salvation. They're excited about it. But not the Pharisees. You know what they say in Luke 5.30? They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're grumbling. They're complaining. You know, because in their mind, they're saying, these people don't deserve it. They shouldn't have this uh, kind of feasting. And Jesus, wait a second, you're saying they don't have to keep all the law here like we do? They're always feeling guilty. They're feeling anxious. And they're saying, you're saying they have salvation? This is too easy. How dare you, Jesus, make it so easy? They're, They're complaining and complaining and grumbling about grace. Because they're saying, if you have to rely on nothing but God's mercy and grace, well... We as Pharisees, our righteousness is in our ability to be good. If we have to rely just on God, I'm just going to dry up. How, how's this going to all work here? You know, um, They're complaining about this. And sometimes, in some ways, the irreligious person does the same thing. They, they look at what God says, and they go through the scriptures, and I'm kind of interested in Jesus. I like all the stuff he teaches. But man, when, it, when he says some hard things, like what? Confess my sins? I'm a, I'm a sinful person? Wait a second. Is Jesus saying we should be generous? We should be with our money? What do you mean? No sex outside marriage. If I obey God in all of this, it feels like I'm going to dry up and we begin to complain. We begin to doubt. And we begin to say, no, 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 no. This is not going to work for me. Now, here's the problem. We know we're all there. But how do we heal ourselves? Because if I tell you to just stop grumbling, if I just tell you to just, well, just worship God more, be grateful, have a thankful heart, that's not going to bring about much change in your life because it doesn't do a whole lot for me either. There has to be grace for the grumbler. There has to be grace here that's going to heal us so that we can stop moaning and groaning about all this stuff and start to see how God is at work. How does God send grace to the grumbler, to someone like me, someone like you. You know, uh, we had the same problem in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, Jesus is having a conversation with some Jews who are asking him, how do we know you are from God? How do we know? 
You know, we know we are God's chosen people. And you know how we knew? Our ancestors, they ate manna in the desert. Did you know that? That was the sign that God had given to Moses that he was with them. It's ironic, isn't it? Given that they were complaining about this, and now it's the sign. And Jesus says, you know the manna Moses gave them? That was pretty miraculous. But it was only a sign of the bread that God was eventually going to provide. Bread for the world. And Jesus goes on to say there, what? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. And he's saying something. Look, you know, you guys are grumbling because you're doubting my credentials. You're doubting me because I didn't go to the right rabbinical school. Yeah, I know there's all this stuff about, well, you're from Nazareth. How, how can anything good come from that small town that's in the middle of nowhere? We don't even know if you're illegitimate or not because there was all this whispering about who was his biological father. And all of this is happening. And you know what they did in John 6, 41? It tells us the Jews grumbled about Jesus. Because he said, I'm the bread of heaven. Just like the Israelites did not believe God would save them in the wilderness, they're now beginning to grumble at man who has come from heaven, who is Jesus himself. What did they do to Jesus? They mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They blindfolded him, punched him. And they said, let's play Marco Polo. But you know, in the middle of all of this, this manna that came from heaven, who is Jesus himself, you know how he saves us? I mean, as much as they all grumbled about Jesus, as much as we have grumbled against God's grace, as we grumble complain about this, that, and the other thing. We doubt God's goodness in our life. One thing that never comes out of Jesus' mouth, if you notice, is that he doesn't grumble against us. He doesn't despise us. He loves us. He goes to the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the kind of grace we need. This is the kind of grace that heals our hearts because when you begin to see that and you say, oh my goodness, this is something I don't deserve. I'm the one that's grumbling and he's giving forgiveness, mercy, patience, kindness. And when we have this, and to the degree we have this in our hearts, what can come out of our mouths but thanks and praise? What can come out of our mouths instead of grumbling to say, God, you are so good. You have been good to us. You have been good to me. How can I continue to doubt? I'm struggling here. Emotionally, I'm not sure if, if I can get over all of this, but I need you here. And as we begin to remember the gospel for us and remember this imparted into our hearts, the grumbler can be transformed into the one who gives thanks. Where when we open our mouths, as the psalmist says, that our mouths shall be filled and you know, when, we, when I think about living in the city or living anywhere, part of Christian witness is what comes out of our mouths when we open it. Is it grace? Don't be like me, please, okay? Don't be the grumbler. 
but be the one that is filled with praise, kindness, words of mercy, and words of hope, because we are people. Christians are people who know we have received this. Remember this. Think about this this week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a God who is incredibly patient, who is gracious, who is loving. That to us who grumble, we grumble about inconsequential things, small things and large things. But Father, help us to be able to see that you're a God who has grace for failures like us, for bitter people like us. And that, Lord, your grace can actually transform us and form us into a beautiful community that's not just lashing out at everything around us that's wrong, but that our mouths would be full of praise, kindness, mercy, that we would be filled with words of healing and an attitude of gentleness, that the city would see not an angry people, but a people that loves you and represents you. We pray that First Prez would be that kind of church, that it would be known for kindness and gentleness and a place of hope, that people would see the beauty of Jesus lifted up here, that non-Christians would come and not feel condemned, but feel welcomed, that they would feel the warm embrace of a Savior that says, come in here and see what I'm about, that it would be attractive and beautiful. Change us, Lord. Empower us, we ask. We ask these things for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You know, as we come to this table, one of the things that's interesting about what it means to be nourished by bread or even the cup is this. You know, bread, in order to nourish us, actually has to be broken, right? If it's just pretty and you're just holding it, it really doesn't do much. But when we eat and our body breaks it down, it strengthens us. And when you think about what Jesus has done is he had his body broken. Why? Why was his blood shed? In order that we would be nourished. That's what this meal is all about. To be reminded that Jesus has said, I have been broken in order that you would be strengthened. And we come this morning to celebrate this meal. And for all those of you who have been baptized into the life of the church and we're saying, God, that's what I need. I need more of you. I don't need any more good advice. I don't need anything else, platitudes, whatever. I need more of you. Jesus says, come and be nourished by what I provide myself. And this morning, I want to invite you to come and eat. Undoubtedly, there may be some of you who are really struggling. Maybe some of you are struggling to believe have, uh, are on a journey. And if that's where you are, because I don't know all of you here, I want you to know this is a time for you to not have to partake in something that doesn't line up with where you are in your spiritual journey, but use this time to pray and to reflect, to ask God to come and to show you. But feel no compulsion to partake just because everyone else is. And this church is a place where we want people to have that room to process. But feel no pressure to come forward and to partake. But for those of you who are in Christ and want to grow in faith through this meal because you're saying this is what I need, come and partake. But let me begin by praying and giving thanks for what, he, for what God provides here. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you give us this meal. It's a sign and symbol of your grace and mercy. And you have said that whenever we eat and we drink from it, 
Your promise is our union to you would grow ever stronger in a mysterious way by the power of your spirit. Bless this community and bless this meal now and take these common elements and use them for a sacred use, the building up of your church. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night on which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same manner, he also took the cup, and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins for many, drink from it, all of you. We are reminded by the Apostle Paul, whenever we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. You know, uh, at this time, why don't we stand together? We've been sitting for a good long while. And the church, uh, all throughout history, has taken time to say, hey, let's remind ourselves what it is we believe. And this morning, we're going to do that using the Nicene Creed. It's a creed that unites Christians through different denominations throughout the ages. And it's one that summarizes the Christian faith. So we're going to recite this together as our common faith this morning. In one, vo- in one voice. Together, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not created, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, and was made man, was also crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.